You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, friends. So very nice to see you guys uh, in here this morning. My name is Matt Younger. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Would love for you to turn in uh, the Bible to Romans 11 as we continue in our series. And, uh, you know, while you're doing that, uh, while I'm doing that as well, I was thinking this week about um, what it meant to be a younger, because um, I am a, a younger, that's my last name. And I remembered as a kid, um, I was five or six or seven years old, and my dad brought out these books and then a few kind of old artifacts, and he introduced me to something about our heritage. Um, and if you know anything about the Wild West, the mid to late 1800s, crazy time in our country, uh, there were these dudes called the Younger Brothers, and uh, they were uh, pretty wild, and they ran with uh, Jesse James. They did a whole lot of crazy stuff, and my dad showed me how I am uh, a direct descendant of those folks. And uh, so, you know, growing up, I always thought I would get, you know, kind of maybe that hard edge quality that they had. I think it skipped my generation. I got the recessive gene. My wife actually wanted to name one of our sons uh, Cole, who was kind of the ringleader of those outlaws. And I said, okay, why don't you go look that up first before we name him uh, after uh, Cole Younger, because uh, he did some crazy stuff. But uh, it was pretty cool as a kid learning what it meant to be a younger and tying into my heritage a little bit there. There's a similar thing that I think that's happening for us here this morning uh, in Romans 11. And what I mean to say by that is when I first became a Christian, um, I was immediately accessible with the things that are front and center to Christianity. So think like death, resurrection, cross, forgiveness, receiving Jesus, all of those things that are so important and so essential. But what I had no idea whatsoever is that I was actually a Gentile. I didn't really even know what that meant. Um, And what it meant is that I was not a Jew. I was not of the 12 tribes of Israel. I was actually one that was reached later down the road, if you will, on the other side of the world. And so what Paul's going to do this morning is actually talk about what it means to be a Gentile, which presumably is most of us in the room, and really how we kind of look at that in light of the gospel. And so really where I'm going today, if you want to write it down, is that there's kind of three things in light of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, which we've been talking about for several weeks. In light of Israel's rejection of the, of the Messiah, as Gentiles, there's three things before us in this passage. One, we recognize the glory, we recognize the danger, and we recognize the opportunity as Gentiles in light of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. And so let's go into Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 11. Let me read. So Paul says this, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, that's Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their reconciliation, I'm sorry, if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, 
What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, then so are the branches. So Paul's going to start verse 11 with one of his famous rhetorical questions. This thread has gone through the entire letter, and he's going to ask a question and then answer it very emphatically. No, it's meganointa in the Greek. And so Paul's going to start by saying, did they stumble to fall? So basically, did the Jews stumble for the whole story of redemption to be over with? And he says, no, 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 absolutely not. That's not why they stumbled. That's stumbling's coming from verse nine, where we quote David, let their table be a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. And so Paul's saying, did they stumble to fall? No, they didn't. Their stumble in rejecting the Messiah is actually going to do two things. This is Paul's argument in 11 and 12. What are those two things? One, um, their stumble is going to accelerate blessing and riches of the gospel to the Gentiles. So basically by the Jews rejecting the Messiah, what that means is that God is going to open the door for the nations to be reached. That's the first thing. And secondly, he's gonna use the nations, verse 12, coming to faith to actually make Israel jealous. Does that feel a little kind of middle school drama to you? I always feel, I always felt at least in my short love history that I was always the one being used to make somebody else jealous. So maybe I'm just working out my problems up here in the pulpit. But uh, what Paul is saying is that God is no, not wasting this rejection, but he's actually using it to do two things, to accelerate the gospel going to the entire world. And secondly, to make the Jews jealous in the riches and the blessing of the gospel going out. And this raises a really important question. What is that question? Who was Israel supposed to be? Who were they supposed to be? They were supposed to be a lighthouse. They are supposed to be a lighthouse to the nations. Um, Like they're supposed to be this covenant community of blessing and care and love and dignity that the world marveled and wondered at. And as they dug into this unique little chosen people, they said there's they, that the world would say there's nothing like this on earth. Who is their God? And maybe in the Old Testament, the high point of Old Testament unity would be when King Solomon, David's son, builds the temple. And it's this glorious temple. And after he builds it, he blesses it. And as he blesses it, he prays. And this is what he prays. He says, likewise, Father, when a foreigner who is not your people, Israel, hears of your great name and comes to Israel to pray, will you hear and do all according to their prayer so that the people of the earth may know your name and fear you? Like the whole upshot of this covenant community of Israel would be that the nations would come in and wonder, and yet Israel has decisively not become the son that God has asked them to be. And this is Paul's point. So what does this mean for us? I said there's a glory to recognize. The thing that we have to recognize here on the other side of the world is that Israel's rejection accelerates the blessing of riches to the Gentiles. And that's something for us to be grateful for. Amen? I don't know if you know, Israel's on the other side of the world. It's a really long plane ride from here. And yet over here in Southern United States, We are gathered as a Christian church this morning worshiping Jesus Christ. And that is because in some way, the gospel has gone out from Israel to us. And that is something for us to recognize, that in Israel's rejection, it found its way here and it's finding its way all around the world. 
but that's a point of another sermon, not this one. But this also means that it's not over for Israel. That's why we need to keep reading. So verse 13 is gonna say this. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, okay? Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some of them. This is Paul saying, all right, Gentiles, I'm speaking to you directly now and I'm gonna give you some inside baseball here, okay? This is what I'm doing. I'm magnifying, I'm drawing attention to my ministry to you, Gentiles, which is really fruitful to make them jealous and help them understand grace. So like I'm, I'm ministering to you so that they can see the grace of God that they're rejecting. This isn't too much unlike you know, Hermione Granger giving a lot of attention to Victor Crumb, who's a great guy. In an, I mean, he's a great guy, right? He's a Quidditch champion. He's got a lot going for him, but we all know who Hermione's heart was really after, Ron Weasley, right? And so maybe there's a little bit of this triangulation to say, you know what? I'm trying to get Ron Weasley's attention, even though Victor Crumb's a great guy himself. It's a similar thing happening. That's Harry Potter. If you don't know the book, you should read it. Um, and, and again, yeah, like this is, this is a glory, like the, like a liter, maybe the understatement of the Bible, honestly, like maybe the understatement of the entire Bible that Israel's rejection means the reconciliation of the world. Did you hear that? Because Israel doesn't, ex, doesn't accept their Messiah, the world is going to experience the glory of the gospel and be reconciled. No big deal, right? No, guys, like this is crazy. And so the glory of this is that we are here now. And then Paul's gonna say, how much more wonderful then, verse 15, when they actually wake up and experience life from the dead because it's not over for them. It's not over yet. And then he's gonna go into two, I think, really meaningful illustrations. Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, then so is the branches. And these two illustrations of the first fruits and the root actually teach the same truth. So what they're referring to are the saving promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's name, namely Abraham, because if you know the story of Abraham, you know of a man who agonized in faith and who believed God against all hope. And God says his faith is credited to him as righteousness. And then there's a promise given uh, to future generations. And Paul's gonna make very clear in Galatians 3.16 that the promise is not to his seeds, plural, but to his seed, Jesus. That that's the promise of Abraham's faith is Christ, which is a really big deal because it means that the promise of Jesus is rooted in the story of Israel, meaning the first fruits and the roots of these promises are still alive and unscathed by Israel's rejection. In a manner of speaking, they're actually stronger than Israel's rejection. And that's the point that Paul is making. And so the glory for us is to see that their rejection is actually our blessing as Gentiles and to see that it's not over for Israel either. And so Paul will now speak more directly to the Gentiles with a fitting analogy. So let's read 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and you now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant towards the branches if you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but it's the root that supports you. And then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Yeah, that's true. 
They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So verse 17, uh, Israel's rejection means that branches are broken off of an olive tree. What's the significance of the olive tree? So Jeremiah and Hosea are both going to use really beautiful imagery to call Israel God's olive tree. It's a kind of a, a guiding metaphor in the Old Testament that, uh, that God is, uh, that, that Israel is there, uh, is, is God's olive tree. And so what Paul's now saying is that the Gentiles, who are actually these wild shoots, have been grafted in and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. And, you know, honestly, as a graduate of the uh, agricultural school of our state uh, here in Texas, I thought uh, that I was uh, especially in a good place to use an agricultural metaphor for you. And so um, given all my time uh, in College Station uh, and the zero ag classes that I took there, um, and then some time on YouTube this week, I actually learned and dove in uh, to olive trees and all their glory. And here's what's fascinating. You really can. It was this really kind of wicked, cool Australian guy who I was listening to, but you really can. You can go to an olive tree, even an olive tree that looks like it's dead, and you can cut off one of the branches, and then you can take another olive. So I just thought all olive trees made olives. I didn't know there were different kinds of olives. I don't like olives, personally. I just thought olives were olives like apples, but then there's many kinds of apples. So I digress. But, um, but so you have these olive trees that make olives and uh, you can go get a wild olive branch. And then, you know, he made it look so easy. I'm sure I would screw it up, but you can graft that olive into the, the wild branch into the tree and it will grow several kinds of olives. You can do that. It's fascinating. And, uh, and Paul is saying, this is what's happened to us as Gentiles. We've been grafted into the olive tree that is Israel, and we have been supported by the nourishing root. But this is really important because in light of that, Paul's going to say in verse 18 that we're not to be arrogant to the branches because um, we don't support the root. It's actually the root that supports us. Paul's point is this, you, us Gentiles are grafted into a story that precedes us. Like there's a lot more going on and we're in a manner of speaking late to the party. And here's just maybe a little test of that. And I know every time I bring this up, somebody in the room is going to be an expert. So if you are, just please talk to me afterwards. But um, how many of you guys know, uh, like, like you, could, you could quote like cultural um, maybe songs or you know, maybe like Wikipedia, Wikipedia uh, what word am I saying there? Wikipedia? <laughs> Um, type knowledge of uh, the Toltecs, the, the, the pre-Aztec Toltecs who lived in central Mexico from 900 to 1500 AD. Anybody know a lot about them? Anybody? Okay, what about, what about the Jin dynasty of China, uh, 266 to 420 AD? Uh, any of you guys grow up with stories read to you at bedtime about the Jin dynasty? Anybody? 266 to 420. Okay. What about the state of Arkansas? Okay. What about, does, can anybody tell me, and I'm sure you can't, the governor of Arkansas, 
Anybody, can anybody tell me anything about the state legislature? Does anybody know any meaningful history about the state of Arkansas? Some of our Arkansan people can. That's awesome. Good for you. Most of us Texans can't, right? And that's not, it's just what it is, what it is right? We have a full year dedicated to Texas history. Um, uh, growing up here, which such people think is presumptuous, and I certainly don't, but, um, but, uh, but, but here, okay, but, but this is where it gets really interesting, okay? Uh, so Abraham, uh, Abraham was born in southern Iraq in 2150 BC, and yet I can go, Father Abraham had many sons, and you can sing, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and, and, and that's just Abraham. I mean, we have people, and some of you guys don't know these stories, and that's more than okay, because you're newer to the faith. That is more than you. I was you one time. But like some of you guys can name the 12 sons of Israel. Some of you know, like I, I can drop names like Tamar and Ruth and Naomi and Isaiah and Malachi and Boaz and Hannah. And you actually know these people, these obscure people of the ancient Near East in a story that precedes the last 5,000 years. And you know these people and you know these people because you have been grafted into a story that precedes you that you are nourished by a root and it's not the other way around. And it's so easy for us because the gospel has gone out and that's a really good thing. Like the gospel has in many ways saturated the American South. And so even where Christianity might be waning, the vestiges of Christendom are still here. Like you literally can't leave Walnut Hill and go any direction without seeing a church or a Christian private school. And so what happens when you grow up here is you think, I think unwittingly, that this is like ground zero of Christianity. And the reality is that it's just not. Like, it's just not. Like, we are nothing special. We are the Gentiles who were reached on the other side of the world. On the other side of the world, in a story that precedes us, you know, Jesus interacts with this woman in both Mark and Matthew's gospel, catch it. Uh, a Gentile Canaanite woman whose daughter has uh, a demonic um, manifestation, and she goes to Jesus and she pleads with Jesus to heal this demon, to heal her daughter, rather. rather. And uh, Jesus responds to her, maybe you know the story. He says, no, I was not sent to you. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Like calling, the, and that word's pup, more puppy than dog. But what he's saying is, I didn't come for you. I came for my people primarily right now. And then she responds in great faith. And she says, yes, Jesus, you're right. But even the dogs will pick up the breadcrumbs that fall on the floor. And so Jesus is so moved by her faith that he says, go, your daughter as well. And that is a foreshadowing of a greater healing that's about to come after his resurrection when he tells the disciples to go into the world. But what's fascinating about this woman's faith is that she understood her place. She understood that she was an undeserving Gentile tied into a story much greater than hers. And so should we. Like We are not anything special here. Like we are not ground zero of Christianity, far from it. We are a tribe of people who've been reached by a story that precedes us a long time ago. And so the danger for us would be 
a naivete and an ignorance about this rich faith heritage. Guys, we worship a Hebrew savior. We read largely a Hebrew Bible. There is a story that far precedes us. We do not nourish the root. We are nourished by the root. Uh, and the promises given to men and women far, far before our time. Teddy Roosevelt's one of my heroes. Um, I just think he's fascinating. I've read a lot about him. Why would you not? I mean, this guy scaled the Matterhorn. Um, he got shot during a speech and he kept going for almost an hour. Uh, he won a Nobel Peace Prize. He was a rough rider. Uh, he instituted the national parks, uh, was influential in creating the forward pass in football. I mean, are you kidding me? Has a bear named after him, Teddy Bear, that's him. Um, and his legacy lives on. And his legacy lives on so much so that he has uh, kind of sons in his namesake. And so um, he has a great, great, great grandson um, who's a little bit older than me named Teddy Roosevelt V. And uh, he is in um, uh, private equity in New York City and uh, seems like a swell guy, uh, according to his Twitter account. He seems fine, right? Um, but what's really interesting is, you know, this is a guy in Teddy Roosevelt V that really has kind of two options in front of him. One option would go, hey, listen, I'm, I am the grandson of one of the most consequential people in history. And so that means that I have access to resources and I have a name that far precedes me. And so I get to steward the good legacy of that name and then maybe march forward in whatever his little part looks like. Or he could act like he has nothing whatsoever to do with his great-grandfather and that everything that he has is his and that there's no tie whatsoever to this great heritage that he has. And I feel like the latter option would be pretty arrogant to do, to not steward the good name and the good legacy and the good fortune of the people who were before him. And I think this is the same idea that the danger for us would be naivete and ignorance about a rich faith heritage that we have because we are supported by the root. The promises are to Abraham. It's not the other way around. And so we live in that blessing, but that's not the only danger. The other danger would be verse 19, um, where he's gonna say, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, this is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. And what's happening here, what, what, what Paul's picking up on is the, the, the possibility, the potential for us to become smug and go, okay, well, these other you know, branches got torn off, great. So I get included, that's awesome. And Paul's going, yep, they did get torn off, but be, like they got torn off, not because you're awesome. They got torn off because of their unbelief. Like these, these branches being ripped apart had nothing to do with you and everything to do with them. And so you should walk in a lot of humility is his point. And I think really the upshot of verse 20 and beyond is that we're not to get caught up in our place. Here's the, let me just say, here's the danger. The danger, verse 20, is pride that we think we're something special. And, uh, and I think what, we're, what Paul's explaining here is that we're not to get caught up in our place with the other branches, but rather we're to stand fast through faith at the wonder of what God has done. Verse 21, so don't be 
proud, verse 20 rather, but fear. And that, if that word scares you, don't let it scare you. It doesn't mean walk in terror. It means walk in reverence. It means walk in wonder. It means be like the woman at the table and the, and the story that I just told, the woman at the table who knew she was completely undeserving of grace, but asked for it anyway. Verse 21 makes it really clear. If God did not spare those within his covenant people who did not receive the Messiah, then trust me, he's not gonna spare us either. And so we need to be really careful with this danger of pride, of thinking that we are anything. Guys, like Israel, Israel did not fall out of their belief that they were a chosen people. It wasn't that. They fell because they believed they were a choice people. And so Paul's going to come forward with this idea of grace. Like what you need to bring is nothing. What you need to own is your sin. And if you can humble yourself and own your sin, I can answer your greatest need. That's the, what the Messiah is for. But they couldn't humble themselves to receive that. And we have the same problem. Like we can't humble ourselves to actually receive the only thing we need. And that's the humility to, to you guys know what I'm saying. And so that's why he says in verse 22, he juxtaposes severity and kindness Kindness is wonderful, okay? So kindness is, um, kindness is at the heart of God, okay? Kindness is in the life of Jesus. Kindness is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Kindness is on every shirt that Target sells, literally every shirt. So something about kindness. Kindness is one of the greatest, uh, one, of the mo- one of the most disarming apologetics in the entire world, kindness, Stay in his kindness. That's a good word for us. But notice God's severity as well. Do you see what God's saying? Is like to reject the kindness of God in his grace is to both choose and experience his severity. What do I mean by that? So my brother lives in um, Alabama. He lives outside of Birmingham and he bought a little vacation home in Northern Alabama. And uh, he was telling me about it and we went out there to see him. And he's like, Matt, it's, it's pretty uh, you know, like topography-wise, it's it's pretty hilly up there. And of course, for me, you know, I just have a Texas perspective on everything. So by hill, I think he means like, you know, maybe the hill at DBU. You know what I'm saying? Just something like, you know, like that's, that's you know. Not, and so we get there and uh, he ain't kidding, man. I mean, we're kind of at the foothills of Appalachia and uh, stuff's moving. And he lives in this great little place. And there's a, a trail right by it. And so we're just walking there with our kids. And, uh, and Luke goes, hey, slow down, be careful, be careful. And I just, I just couldn't see it. And then he pretty much bolted ahead uh, like a good leader, good dad, good uncle, and, 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 and kind of stayed in front of the pack. And the reason why he did, I saw it, is he told me about this valley that he lived by, this ravine um, that I thought might be like maybe you know a small dip. And then I get to an edge and we're about 20 yards away from an edge that I'm not kidding you. Like if you threw a tennis ball, it'd be like a five Mississippi before that thing hit the ground. It was deep. And so my brother, uh, in his wisdom, I think it was, was kind of showing us something. And that was like, hey, listen, there are kind of boundaries of kindness. And I think that's the way the Lord operates. There's these boundaries of kindness to operate in this 
world that he's given us with this wisdom that he's asked us to live by. And then there's the severity of going beyond that. And at the end of the day, man, if, if you, and I think this is a point that's so clear in the scripture, is that, you know, Paul's saying, God's saying, if you will not have the boundaries of my kindness, then what you will experience is the boundary of your severity. Like what you will experience is the severity of going outside of the kindness that I've called you to walk in, to rest in, to be the kindness of grace, the kindness of mercy, and the kindness of being shepherded by somebody like my brother who knows what's ahead and has the wisdom to say to slow down and stop. You don't know how far that fall is. And what Paul's saying is that if you want to reject the kindness of God, the only other option you have is severity. And is that his severity? Yes, but it's severity rooted in his kindness because he knows that everything outside of those boundaries are awful for us. Um, so the danger for us is twofold. It's the naivete of our part in the story, and it's also the pride of thinking that we're anything special. And we wrap up briefly with just opportunity. So we talked about a glory, a danger, and an opportunity. And let me read verses 23 and 24. It says this, and even if they... Even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in again. That's a promise. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? Paul's saying that if we can be tied into the root as wild shoots, then they can, of course, be grafted back into what they were. To say it another way, God has not lost his love. Neither should we lose our hope for his people, Israel. That's what Paul is saying here. So what's the opportunity? Um, going back to my um, studies in YouTube this week, something really fascinating happens when you graft a wild olive branch into a tree that almost looks dead, not only can that almost dead olive tree make the wild shoot grow, that the placement of a wild shoot into that almost dead olive tree can actually reinvigorate the olive tree to grow what you can actually do is put life back into that tree by being grafted in. And I think that's the idea. I think the idea is that even when the tree looks dead, we have an opportunity, Northway Church as Gentiles on the other side of the world to be the compelling witness of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness and long suffering to the world that Israel is actually supposed to be. So that in some small way, the compelling quality of our love can further the reconciliation of the world to the nations and can actually show Israel who they are supposed to be. It's pretty wild to think about that we can play that kind of part, but that's exactly what God's word says, that we can reinvigorate the root and that we can embody the life that that community was supposed to show to us. And so uh, we are grafted into a story, brothers and sisters, that reaches far back, further back than we have any idea and really even leads into the mystery of what's to come for Israel. But that's next week and we'll talk about it then. Let me pray. 
Father, thank you for your word and its clarity. Thank you for, um, Lord, just the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you that as Gentile brothers and sisters, we have been grafted in. I pray, Lord, that we would um, just in humility, um, like that Canaanite woman, understand that, um, Lord, that dogs um, can still get the crumbs from the table. Um, And Lord, I pray that that would bring about just, Lord, a wonder at the fact that we have uh, come to faith in Christ, that you have sent missionaries here to us. Lord, I pray that we would be wise uh, to the dangers, Lord, naivete about ignorance, about our story, where we come from, our heritage, and then also um, pride, spiritual pride that makes us miss the grace of God. And Lord, just the opportunity to continue and further the reconciliation of the world by the gospel coming to the nations. And so, Lord, we love you and we need you. We trust you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.